Amen. Well, you guys can find your seats and uh, open up your Bibles. We are back in the book of Mark, uh, back in the book of Mark chapter 10. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming around. We want to uh, give you one. You can just get their attention. We want you to have a copy of, of God's Word in front of you, or you can follow along with us on uh, the Bible app. And I'm so thankful for our worship team filling in and, and uh, helping out while Phil and Lauren are away at the beach. I'm really hoping that they get some rest. That dude works super hard around here. I'm so thankful for our worship team and the giftedness that we have in our church. It is so good to be back here. And uh, y'all can pray for me. Uh, I left my wife and kids up in Massachusetts. Not like left them, okay? Um, but they're up in Massachusetts. We went up there for a couple of days. I got to go to that beach for a couple of days and hang out with them. And they're spending some time uh, with her parents and uh, getting some grandma and grandpa time in. And uh, so uh, I'm kind of living the bachelor life this week. But I love, love, love being back here with you guys. You just got to know we got a really sweet church family, right? And, and at Harvest, um, I want you to know this, and we mean it with all our hearts. You are loved. Um, I want you to be a part of this church family. Right? And when you are a part of a family, you actually get to shape what that family looks like for, for, for good or for bad. Right? You're, you're a part of it. You're involved. And, and so um, what kind of a church family do you want to be a part of? You want to be part of a, a family that, that's kind of um, competitive and self-serving and just looking out for your own interests, you know, like one of those families that's constantly yelling at each other, like, you know, like, stay out of my room and, and, and keep your hands off of my stuff and, and, and uh, you know, like, leave me alone. That's mine. I saw it first. And I, don't, I don't want to do that and I don't have time to deal with you and why do you always got to be right and, and why do we always got to do what you want to do? Why can't you ever think of anyone but yourself? Like, we all... We all know families like that, and um, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm, I have the confidence that, that that kind of stuff, I don't hear a lot of that in our family here, and yet, I think it's kind of easy for us to slip into some bad habits that would lead us to that kind of dysfunction around here, where we're just hurting one another, we're um, not thinking of others, that we just have this me-first mentality. You want to be a family full of selfishness and strife? Or do you want to be a part of a family that's really full of love? Then you have to know that your attitudes and your actions and your approach to this family makes a massive impact on what kind of a church we really are. And I believe that as a family, we become less dysfunctional when we become more like Jesus. Amen? And so we're getting after being disciples that are like Christ. And so I want to give you the big idea of the text before we even jump into it. Mark chapter 10, here's the big idea that we're going to be looking at this morning. Disciples choose to serve like Jesus. Disciples choose to serve like Jesus. you got to know, serving does not come easily. Serving does not come naturally. I don't want to do the dishes. I don't want to take the trash out. I don't, I don't want to do the dirty jobs. I don't want to do something that's going to threaten my comfort, that's going to take my time. I really don't want to do the things that, that you're interested, but that, that I'm not, and I'm just confessing, I have a really hard time having a good attitude when I'm not getting my way, and, and I have to put somebody else first, but if 
If I'm going to be like Jesus, then I've got to choose to serve. Mark has been answering uh, these two questions for us. Who is this guy, Jesus? And then what does it mean to be his disciples? And I think this text is going to decisively answer those two questions. In fact, verse 45 is really the heart of this book, all right? It is the the key verse, if you will. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us this is his intention. This is why he came, and this is the example that we have to follow if we are going to be his disciples. And so if you're there, uh, Mark chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 32. All right, starting in verse 32, you follow along with me as I read. He said, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them uh, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here it is. Underline this. Star this. Circle this. Make sure you have this down. For even the Son of Man came. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we love you, and, and we're so thankful that you sent your son, and we've been celebrating that this morning. We're so incredibly grateful for the, the gift of salvation that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for the example that you have given to us. And God, we're just going to confess right now, um, we're probably not on point on this. And, and there's some things that we need to change. There's some areas of our hearts, some things that we need to be doing that would uh, make us more like yourself. That, that we would not just be putting ourselves first, but that we would live to serve. And so I'm praying that you would help us to do that. Would you speak to us in this moment and let us be submissive to your word? Uh, we love it, and we're thankful that you've given it to us, and we're expecting your spirit to work in our hearts, uh, using the power of this book to change us to be more like Jesus. And we'll give you the glory in his name. Amen. 
Well, let me give you uh, three requirements if you're going to choose uh, to serve like Jesus. If you're going to do that, here's what you got to do. Here's one. Note this. Uh, you got to count the cost, all right? You got to count the cost. We get this setting here in uh, verse 32. It says he's on the road. We're on a road trip. On the road again. We're on a road trip with Jesus, and it says he's on the road. Look at, look at where he's going. We're going up to uh, Jerusalem. Okay, so this is Jesus' pivotal journey that he's on. And, and, and I just want to clarify this. I want, I want to put up a map here so that I can use my laser pointer, and hopefully this is helpful to you. Uh, but here is, this is where we think Jesus' journey is coming from. He started way up in here. This is where most of his ministry has been happening, and it's likely that he came down this direction, and we know that he's going to pass through the city of Jericho. We'll actually land there earlier or later on uh, this morning on his way to Jerusalem. So when it says that he's going up to Jerusalem, when I look at the map, it kind of looks like he's going down, doesn't it? Like I would say he's going down to Jerusalem, except um, let me show you this. This shows you a little bit of the, the elevation, all right? The city of Jerusalem up here and Jericho down here, the city of Jerusalem is actually 3,500 feet higher in elevation than the city of Jericho, and it's only 20 miles away. So it's quite literally, he's saying, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. But more significant than the direction that he is going is the reason. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, uh, let's just get our bearings again. Remember, the whole book of Mark is trying to help us understand who this guy is. Who who is Jesus? And in chapter 8, Jesus asked this really important question. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter stepped up and he actually got it right. He says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And that moment marked a a, a massive uh, thematic shift in the book. And from that point on, uh, Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem to carry out the mission of the Messiah. Glad you got it right. Now let me tell you what that means to be the Messiah. And and so uh, he has been predicting his death and his resurrection. This is the third time that he has done that. So come on, tell me. What is waiting for him in Jerusalem? Somebody say the cross. The cross is waiting for him. So notice then what the verse says, verse 32. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Just stop and consider the significance of that. That Jesus is not dragging behind them. Nobody is forcing him. He's not procrastinating. He's not putting off the inevitable. Despite knowing exactly what's coming, Mark shows Jesus uh, resolute and determined to march into this fate that awaits him. Jesus is literally leading the way here. And I just love that that our Savior uh, knew exactly why he came and he did not slink away in fear. He knew the cost. And he's embracing that if he is going to be the suffering servant, it's going to cost him his life. And yet he still chose to serve. But you contrast Jesus with uh, the, the, the rest of those that are following. It says they, they're, they're amazed. Okay, so they're watching Jesus walk ahead of them. They're kind of like in awe a little bit. But it also says that those who followed were afraid. Well, you think about this. He's already told them that the religious leaders, the Jews, are going to kill him. 
And, and so, uh, you know, even though they don't completely understand this mission, the tension in the air is kind of palpable. They kind of realize that we're going to Jerusalem. We're going, look, we're going into the hornet's nest. That's where the temple is. That's the center of all the religious leaders. And so things are about to get crazy if we go there, right? Like, buckle up, guys. Here we go. And so you can appreciate that they're just a little bit nervous about going there. And so uh, Jesus uh, calls another huddle uh, to tell them the plan. I'm going to go over this again. And this is like the third time that he's going to tell them the plan. But this time he's actually going to give them uh, really explicit details about what's going to happen. Here's what he says, verse 33. Uh, okay, guys, see, uh, we are going up. Now, I'm, I'm sure at that moment that all 12 of them picked up on the fact that he said we, not I. Uh, like, No one gets to stay behind. I've already blocked out the dates to request off time for vacation. It's go time, all right? Y'all are coming with me. Uh, And here's what's going to happen when we get there. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, those Jewish religious leaders, and they will condemn him to death. Okay, so we like saw that coming. Uh, those guys hate him, right? And they've squared off one too many times with him. Like, we knew that was going to happen. But then notice what happens next. Uh, those Jewish religious leaders will deliver him over to the Gentiles. I think that's an important detail uh, considering Mark's audience. That it's likely that, that, that he's writing this book to Gentile Christians that are living in the city of Rome. So what he's trying to help them, like, like before you go hating on the Jews, like this is all their fault. This is not a Jew thing, this is a you thing. That we are all responsible for the death of Christ. And I think highlighting that he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles as well as the Jews is going to make it all the more meaningful when in chapter 15 we'll finally get there uh, in chapter 15 the only person in the book who actually calls Jesus the son of God is a Gentile a Roman centurion but Jesus knows what's coming he says verse 34 they will mock him Anyone like being made fun of? You like being the butt of the joke? You like finding out that you walk into a room and everybody's been talking about you and piling on and kicking you while you're down and making you look bad? You like that? Jesus knows that's coming. They will spit on him. I mean, you talk about an insult. They're going to look at the Son of God like he's below them viewing him like he's a waste of life. It says they will flog him. So we're told that um, Romans, in their method of torturing and killing somebody uh, in a form of punishment, when they would flog somebody, they would uh, take a whip that was made out of leather strips that had sharp pieces of metal or bone tied in at various points so that when they would whip you, those sharp pieces would actually dig into your skin and rip away your flesh. And, and they would tie your hands and, and strip you and then just repeatedly strike your back and your legs until the pain of the laceration and all the blood loss would just completely weaken you but just shy of actually killing you. 
so that they can absolutely humiliate you and mock you. And then Jesus knows that they will kill him. That they're going to drive nails through his hands and through his feet and leave him dangling there to just suffocate and bleed out. That's the plan. And I've chosen this, guys. Just like humanly speaking, do you, when you think about that, like knowing that that kind of physical torture and suffering is coming, and yet Jesus chose to do that for you. When the disciples, when, see, see, the reason that they're like, they're fearing this is when, when they thought about a Messiah, they're probably thinking this, this conquering king that's going to ride into Jerusalem and go right into battle, and, and, and he will conquer, because he says after three days he will rise. He is going to be raised to life in victory, but not before the cross. And so if you are going to follow Jesus on the road, you got to know that it's a road of suffering, that it's going to be hard. I mean, think about it. We're trying to carry the gospel of Jesus into a world that hates him and hates everything he stands for. Well, how could it not be hard? But disciples choose to serve like Jesus, having already counted the cost and knowing that if he suffered too, I, I will as well. But also knowing that he is worth it, no matter how hard or difficult the suffering may be. So you've got to count the cost. But then here's a second requirement. Note this. Uh, be great at giving. Be great at giving. Uh, so no sooner does Jesus kind of finish explaining his mission, like what's going to happen when they get there, than here comes two of the disciples to prove that yet again they just completely miss it and they don't get it. You get uh, James and John, these, these brothers, and they come up and say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's kind of a bold request, isn't it? Uh, There's no specifics yet. They basically just want assurance that Jesus will just say yes to whatever it is that they have to say. One commentator said they're basically asking for a blank check. I can only imagine how this would go at my house if one of my kids walked up to me and was like, Dad, before before I ask, can you just say yes? Like, how, How many of you are going to be agreeing to that right off the bat? Survey says... Probably not, okay? Not until I know what it is that you're asking for. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, uh, we want you to grant us to sit, uh, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. So they are already picturing Jesus as this, this glorious king, and they want to get the best seats in the house. They want to have the positions of honor because they're like, man, when Jesus does go in and he does reign, everybody, all eyes are going to be on him. So just imagine, and while everybody's looking at Jesus, they see the two of us sitting right next to him. At that point, everybody will know we're with Jesus. I mean, we're close. We, we you know, we're, he confides in us. We're in the inner circle. We are really important people. And so when, when James and John say this, it's easy for us to be like, man, those guys are so arrogant. But can we just be honest? Looking out for ourselves and believing that we deserve to get what we want comes naturally to all of us. 
And it's not just these two guys, because the rest of them, when, when the rest of the disciples find out about it, they're not super thrilled about this, are they? Verse 41 uh, tells us that when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I can only imagine, especially Peter. Peter's got to be ticked about this, right? Because you got like Peter, James, and John. They're like this inner circle. They're always together. You always hear Peter, James, and John. And now even he's being excluded. You don't think he remembers this? They are angry at these guys. Why? Because they didn't think of it first. Because they're going to be left out. That it's going to be better for these two guys than it is for them. And that's not fair. And I know that you felt this. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this kind of feeling when you go to uh, the grocery store. Has this ever happened to you when you get in line and you realize that you got into a really long, really slow checkout line? You know what I'm talking about? And, and so, like, at that, it's like obvious that everybody around you is starting to get impatient. They're all like, like, why is this taking so long? And then finally, another cashier comes around and starts to open up a new checkout lane. And what happens in that moment? See, here's the deal. Everybody knows that when there's a line, you stay in line. You don't cut in front of people. But when a new line forms, there's no rules. And everybody just like jumping at the chance to get up there. And if somebody who's behind me in line races ahead of me and gets there first, you know what's going through my mind? Jerk. How dare that guy do that? Don't judge me. I know, that you, I know that you feel this as well, all right? Like, I, like we all feel this because this, this is just natural to all of it. It's the way of the world. In fact, Jesus says that, verse 42, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is how the world works. When you can seize power, do it. When you can get what you want, do it. Climb to the top. Step over people. Step on people if you have to. If you want it, go and get it. But it shall not be so among you. I think some of us are really good at counting the cost and determining what will be most advantageous to us personally in the immediate future and, and protecting our interests and doing what's comfortable, doing what makes us happy, putting ourselves first. Some of us are really good at getting what we want right now. Hey, church, don't be good at that. Don't be good at that. The economy of God's kingdom is upside down. He says, verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That word in the Greek is the word diakonos, where we get our word deacon. It literally has the idea of somebody who waits on tables. So, so here's what he's trying to help you understand. Disciples don't just walk in like they own the place and expect everybody to jump up and like wait on their beck and call and order people around to have all their wishes fulfilled because I'm the customer and the customer's king. No, no. The great ones in God's kingdom put on the tie and tie on the apron and hand out the menus to other people and take their orders and fill their glass and, and, and come back and check to see if you can make their evening more comfortable and look for ways to serve. 
But apparently even that's not low enough because Jesus goes a little bit further, verse 44. Uh, He says, whoever would be first among you must be not just servant, but slave of all. That's even lower. This is the lowest of low. God is calling us to embrace the bottom where there is nothing below you that you're too good to do. And there is nobody lower than you that you're too good to serve. And the beauty of this is that Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he's not already done himself. Because here's what he says, verse 45, even even the Son of Man came not to be served, even though he should be, right? I mean, he is the only one who is always worthy of all of our worship and service, but even he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for You see, he knew exactly what serving meant for him. And he's already shown us that he's not just like looking out for his own interest, that he is willing to embrace the horrors of suffering. He knows what's coming. In fact, when James and John asked for those positions of uh, authority and and, and positions of power, here's what he said. Are you, verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Baptized. So this, this cup and this baptism are actually symbols of suffering. He knew it was coming. You can, you can picture a, a, a cup being handed by the Father to Jesus, symbolizing this mission of suffering has been assigned to you. you got to drink the whole thing. And he embraces it. And he's going to be immersed in it. He knows it's God's will. And he knows it's not going to be easy. And yet he embraces that, doesn't he? Because what does he pray later in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing this is coming? He says, remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. You see, James and John thought that they, they're like, yeah, we could, we could do that, which pretty much proved that they didn't completely understand what Jesus was talking about. And yet Jesus assures them that, yes, you, you will drink that cup and be baptized into suffering, but these guys were just looking to get the benefits with no interest in actually giving to anyone else. They don't want to give. But that's not what servants do. Servants give. Just as Christ gave his life for us. I mean, think about if, if he had not done that, if Jesus had not been willing to humble himself and open up his hands and give so generously, then you and I would still be slaves to sin because a payment needs to be made. A payment needs to be made for our sins. And so when he gave his life by letting them drain his blood out of those lacerations and out of the puncture wounds of thorns and nails, that blood, that was the payment, the ransom that bought us and set us free. See, this is the essence of the gospel right here in this verse. The essence of the gospel is this. God gives. And he gives freely. He gives graciously. And Jesus walked the path of true greatness in his kingdom, just asking us to follow him. So don't just be good at getting. Be great at giving like Jesus. you got to remember, what, like, what stands out to me as, as I think about what Jesus is doing here. Remember, we saw at the very beginning, he's walking ahead of them. 
He's leading the way in this. What's shocking to me is his attitude. That, 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 that he's not reluctant to serve. He is not reluctant to give. There was never a conversation that happened up in heaven between the Trinity when the Father, Son, and the Spirit got together and they're like, all right, listen, like one of us has got to go down and save these stupid people. And the Holy Spirit's like, not it. So Jesus got stuck with it and he had to go. Or that they played paper, rock, scissors, and Jesus lost. And so he's like, oh, fine, I'll go. That's not his attitude. In fact, his attitude is shocking to me that that he would give himself willingly. And Hebrews actually says it was for the joy that set before him that he endured the cross. He wanted to do this. Man, that just makes such a stark contrast in my own life. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I am so reluctant to serve because I don't want to give I don't want to give my energy I don't want to give my stuff I don't want to give my time if I do that I'm going to have to rearrange my schedule Uh, I'm going to get worn out Uh, I won't be able to do what I want to do I'll have less than what I had before I don't want to do that in fact this week um, God gave me an opportunity um, to knock this one out of the park and I blew it (laughs) just being honest with you I was asked to do something that, just quite frankly, I didn't want to do. And I knew that it wasn't hard, uh, but, uh, it, and I knew that it would help somebody else out, and, and, and it would be a great way to serve, but I just didn't feel like it. It was not something that I was interested in, and um, I was kind of backed into a corner, like I, I had to do it. I had to serve, so I did it. I'm just confessing to you, I really struggled with my attitude. Praise God, I have an awesome wife who helps me put things into perspective and that uh, the amount of time that it takes me to change my attitude is shortening. I'm thankful for that. I gave, but I can't say that I'm great at it. I'm still learning. And I don't think I'm alone on this one. I actually can't tell you how discouraging it is when people walk into our church or um, into one of our small groups and they're just looking for what they get out of it. Like, I don't know, like, nobody's going to say it out loud. But when this is happening in your heart and in your attitude of like, okay, what do you got for me now? You going to take care of me? You going to entertain me? You going to look out for my needs? You going to pray for me? Is this going to be worth my time? Are you going to make me happy? Are you are you going to be my friend? What am I going to get out of this? And if you or I walk in with that kind of an attitude, then listen, we are shaping the culture of this church with our selfishness. You know what would be great instead? If we just choose to serve if we walked in with, with generous hearts and open hands and just said, like, like how can I help? Can, can, can I give of my time? Can I, can I give my attention to your needs? What, what, what's going on in your life? Can, can, can I give my resources? Who can I reach out to? Who is it that I could impact by giving of myself? What can I do to serve? Man, I want to be a part of that church, a church that's full of people that are really great at giving of themselves. Imagine what God would do with a church like that. And imagine how that approach um, would change life at home with your spouse or with your kids. 
I'm not just looking at how this is going to impact me, what I'm going to have to give up. Imagine what that would do at work. Imagine what that would do in your community where you live. Where's your heart on this? Maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's some things that you um, need to confess to the Lord. Some areas where you realize that you've just been looking out for yourself, just like the disciples. Looking at what you're going to get. And putting yourself first. Instead of giving like Christ has done for you. What's that? What's that one area? Who's the one person that's coming to your mind right now? You know you need to choose to serve. I'm guessing it's probably somebody um, that's close to you or somebody who should be close to you, but you just haven't been willing to give them the time of day or make them worth your time. Who's he pressing on you right now? Is it in your small group? Are you even going to small group? Is it a ministry a team? An area where you could serve? I think we all got work to do on this. And so if we're going to choose to serve like Christ, then we all need this. Note, note this. Keep crying out to Christ. Keep crying out to him. It's a point where we all just say, God, we need help. I want to read to you um, the end of this chapter, this story that closes out chapter 10 in this journey that that Jesus has been on uh, to Jerusalem. In fact, next week when we open up chapter 11, we're going to arrive at the city gates. But um, the way that he closes this out, I think, captures the heart of uh, discipleship. All right? So looking at verse 46, and uh, they're continuing this journey. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, uh, that is just an awesome name, by the way. I would commend that to you parents if you've not considered that one. Um, uh, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, love that, and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So we get this healing of a blind man. If you'll remember, maybe you have a little bit of deja vu. Um, Jesus has already healed another blind man back in chapter 8. Remember that? In fact, the the healing of these two blind men actually bookends this journey to Jerusalem and the three times that Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection and all of this intense teaching on discipleship. And so Bartimaeus is actually a picture of being a disciple. In fact, one scholar notes that 
Um, Bartimaeus starts off on the side of the road, like he's sidelined or marginalized, but by the end of the story, he's on the road, following, it says, on the way. But while the crowds don't have time for this guy, Bartimaeus knows he needs Jesus, and he's been convinced that Jesus is the only one who can help him. So even though they're all trying to get him to shut up, he will not be silenced. And he just keeps crying out to Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. This is the one we've been waiting for. And so if you can tell, the the irony in this moment is that this blind man can actually see who Jesus is better than even his own disciples. Man, they don't get it. They still don't get it. And yet Jesus, in this moment, is going to show them again that he has the power to make them get it. He has the power to open up their eyes and to help them see. You need help? Hey, listen, I love this, that if you cry out to Christ, notice, Jesus stops. He's going to listen. And he asks them, verse 51, what what do you want me to do for you? That's the same question that he asked James and John. But when they asked it, they were really only asking for their own glory, just showing how much they were thinking of themselves. But but Bartimaeus, when, when he asked just to recover his eyesight, what he's doing is demonstrating how much he thinks of Christ. I believe that you have the power to heal me. And Jesus says, man, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. That's saving faith right there. And so maybe the Lord's convicting you a little bit that your life doesn't look like a servant. And there's some areas that don't look anything like his son. He's just trying to help you see this right now. If you will cry out to him, he has the power to change you. If you will cry out to him, he'll do the work in your heart to make you a disciple who will choose to serve just like him. Father, I'm praying that you would make this evident in our hearts. I pray that you would make us people that want to be like Jesus. Lord, that we would, um, we would be baptized in the memory of what you've done for us on the cross. And that as we consider what you did for us and your willingness to go, And to do that joyfully, knowing exactly what awaited you in Jerusalem, yet you still did it. Lord, I pray that you would instill that same heart, that same attitude in your people here. God, make us a church that not only cries out to you for help, but that is seeing you actually do it. Changing our hearts. We will count the cost. and No, this is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. But we know it's worth it. The hardest part, Lord, is we just want to get. We just think about ourselves. But I pray that you would make us a church that is great at giving. Lord, this mission is worth it. You are worthy. And I pray that we would become more like you in Jesus' name.